What's shaking, cats and kittens? I'm Rob Lee from Getting to the Truth in This Art. And this podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Bazaar. Bazaar is a gift shop for those seeking the strange and unusual. Got morbid curiosity? Got an interest in natural history? Bazaar's got you covered. Bazaar specializes in antique medical equipment, jewelry, prints, funerary antiques, and many other morbid gifts. The inventory is ever-changing. I'm wearing a great death's head moth pin, and I'm enjoying this hand-poured candle called Overgrown Cemetery. It's great. It has the studio smelling awesome. Head on over to 3534 Chestnut Avenue in Baltimore, Sinan Hamden neighborhood, and see what they got to offer at Bazaar. Tell them Rob Lee sent you. Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art on MTR Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Lee. And my next guest is a writer, historian, and author of Common Phantoms, an American history of psychic science. Please welcome Dr. Alicia Pulianisi. Hi, um, I'm really excited to talk with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's, it's, always, um, it's always good to um, connect with people who kind of cover some of the more interesting sides of uh, like culture and, and history or what have you. And I you know, did a very, very, very cursory um, read about what a lot of your work is about, but I'll hand that over to you and let you kind of describe what your work is and your writing and what you do on a day-to-day. Yeah, thanks. Um, So I'm mainly at this point a freelance writer um, and adjunct professor. I teach courses at Hopkins and I've taught at MICA occasionally. Um, And my writing tends to be, my paid work tends to be uh, nonfiction writing. And then I've also done some curation work um, for the Jewish Museum and for Johns Hopkins, uh, putting together exhibits. And then when I'm not working on stuff for money, I do like poetry, um, experimental prose and some visual art. That's great. So um, you have the the act the academic side. You have the creative side. So, so as you were saying earlier, very very busy it seems. Um, so in 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 doing some of the I guess you said nonfiction right um, and the some of the visual art. So in that in that space, what inspires that creativity? So I was thinking about this question and like I find the idea of creativity a bit hard to pin down because sometimes it tends to mystify the conditions under which we work and the relationships that make our work possible. So like, I often write for money and that's creative in the sense that I'm producing content that didn't previously exist, but it also involves giving people at least like some of what they want. Sure. So, and then when I write for my own purposes, I'm kind of channeling everything around me and that's, maybe showing people not what they want, but what they're enduring, which is an act of love and of revenge against the order of our particular society. So what, in, in your opinion, is, because I, I have in here um, historian. So, so what, in your opinion, is an essential or essential set of qualities needed for to be a, a good historian? I've definitely been thinking about that a lot as I'm working on my next book, which is uh, a sort of general interest nonfiction book. So my previous book that you mentioned, Common Phantoms, is with an academic press. And so, you know, it has the whole apparatus, like extensive footnotes, peer review, and like 
you know, five people are going to read it. <laughs> and so that's where like, you can be a good historian and play by all of the rules and stuff. Um, writing for a general interest audience uh, is, has really made me like ponder, like, what do you need to do to still be a good historian? Well, um, providing engaging narratives for people. And there's this kind of combination of receptiveness and attention to detail mm -hmm. with also having a critical analysis, so like a higher level grasp of the political and social context. And when you have that context, these like seemingly insignificant details become very telling and they become symptomatic of something larger. So in really good work, you see those pieces fit together and it's very satisfying and it really makes an impact on one's consciousness to have that moment of insight, yeah. um, even when everything else is very complex and kind of murky. So that's what I love in other people's work and hopefully like achieve a few moments of that. So, so when did you, when did you realize like you wanted to go into like just his like history as a, as a point of interest, like, I'm really like, for instance, for me, and this is nowhere near yours because obviously you're an academic and all of that. Me, I'm like, ah, I like trivia. Let me see if I can get a degree in trivia. But for like uh, being a historian, like what was what was kind of that 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 moment or maybe a series of moments that was just like, you know what? I I'm, I think I'd be good at this. I'm good at this research component. I'm good at being able to bring these different elements together. Like speak on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I actually have a terrible memory and I'm terrible at trivia and cannot remember dates. Um, so it's not, it's not any like competencies of mine that made me like want to pursue this track. It's more like I wanted answers. Mm. Like I just really wanted answers. And I was initially, you know, like when I was in school, I kind of was did a lot of art stuff, did a lot of, you know, literature stuff, but I felt like I needed to make practical choices. And so I had done um, like a cognitive science major, which was really big at that time, like mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, it was like neuroscience was the future. And as I was just taking those classes, I, I was not impressed by like the validity of the claims that were being presented to me. And oh. so I kind of went down I was very fortunate. Um, in some ways, I feel like my soul was saved by um, going down this path of science studies, which is kind of like critical history and sociology of the sciences. Yeah. And that I kind of found answers there that helped me understand the world that we live in. And that is a very reinforcing experience where you just want to keep going deeper yeah. Um, the, the, the key, the key, uh, thing that you said that resonated with me was like seeking truth. Let's get to this bedrock and let's find out really what's happening. And that's, um, I, I remember some dates. I don't, I don't remember a lot of dates. I'm not going to, you know, edify myself too much here, but, um, I, I do seek, um, that truth. That's one of the reasons why when kind of looking over your, your bio and some of the information and seeing a few things that you've been involved with and doing some, you know, research, it's just like, all right, all right. Okay. I guess something, I see some, some kindredness here as to what you're looking for and what you're seeking. Um, so describe your first book, give us that, that rundown and what was the process like writing it? Well, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it because it came out like in the early months of the pandemic. And so it was kind of like 
crickets. Like <laughs> it was like nothing happened. Um, so I, I do appreciate people like having an interest in it. Um, so the book was based on, I'm not supposed to say this because apparently it causes fewer copies to sell, but it was based on my dissertation, <laughs> which you can access on the internet. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really, the dissertation is not good. And so you should read the book. Cause like I spent another like six years working on it and it, it does make the six years make a difference. Noted. <laughs> uh, but so the book is about how people in the late 19th and early 20th century used seances and clairvoyance and telepathy and these kind of spiritualist and occult practices to question the boundaries of the individual mind. Uh, so, you know, can we communicate directly mind to mind? Is there a collective unconscious? You know, is there kind of a common wellspring of, hum of human intellect and personality? Um, and so stuff like that, that's kind of like spooky and weird. Um, but at the time, at the time was not yet seen as, or there was this moment um, when prior to the formation of psychology as a formal scientific field, when it was a lot more open and these questions of the nature of mind and the nature of thought yeah. were being yeah. explored in a lot of different modalities. Okay. Okay. That, that, that the combining of like, I see so much right now because it's social media and people want to act like they know certain things and you see all of these kind of occult oriented things. And it's just like, this is superficial. This is a superficial level. And that was, I think that's one of the things like in going with this, this, this notion of seeking truth and maybe I'll learn something from it. It's like, Oh, this is what you're writing about. <laughs> and, and that's why I was like, let's talk to you. Let's reach out to you because I want people to be wrong because I want to be right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I mean, I ultimately have like, uh, it, it was interesting to be working on this dissertation and then book during another moment of a kind of popular, like occult revival. Mm -hmm. um, because I saw, you know, all my friends like getting into tarot and astrology and, you know, I, I respect those practices as sources of knowledge. Um, but of course there is also a, but I do not respect the ways in which they're commoditized on social media and stuff like that. Like I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not amused, but, and, you know, I think for me, what, what made me interested in that interface between, uh, spiritual and occult practices and science mm -hmm was our kind of Western desire to actually, for there to be a ground truth, for there to have like an actual uh, f falsifiable scientific like basis for our beliefs, yeah. which is inherently not possible when we're talking about metaphysical belief. And so they're in the late 19th century, they're trying to break through that asymptotic like, relationship between verifiable fact and belief. Yeah. And they really thought that they might be able to do it. Um, and so I think today we don't have that, uh, we don't have that same expectation. Although some people do, I mean, parapsychology is still, still a field, still going, but I think that occult and spiritualist knowledge has this potential to subvert hierarchy and domination. And that's what I found attractive about it. And I think that's what other people find attractive about it too. 
Um, in uh, the poet Anne Boyer has a new book out where she writes, um, in the clash of civilizations, the living versus the dead, I know which side I'm on, never saying which. <laughs> and so I think that the dead permeate our world and demand certain things from us, which we need to be attending to. And ultimately, this is a question about solidarity. Like, will there be winners and losers? Or will we finally accept that we have a shared humanity? So that for me is the set of questions that that area opens up. Yeah. Well, at the same time, recognizing that like that occult stuff can also serve power in many ways. And it, you know, also was the favorite of fascists. And so there's not an inherent politics to stuff that might be categorized as like weird and curious. Yeah. Uh, I've, I had, um, I had, uh, Greg from, um, Bazaar and Hamden on and they were a sponsor and all. I was like, Hmm, how do these things go together? I feel like it's going to be some day where I just repurpose content. And it's like that podcast, this podcast back to back. That'd so, be a good pairing. So I, I read that you're, you're published in various places. I'm online, including Atlas Obscure. Um, is there a specific period of time or topic that, that interests you outside of what you've, you've, you've just mentioned and explain why. So my academic training is in that 19th and 20th century period, um, history of science and medicine, mainly North America and Europe. And so that has its limitations. Um, but it's also the context in which I live yeah. and the place where like whatever political or moral agency my work might have would be located. So, um, that's generally the time and place. And I've always been interested in epistemology, how we know what we know, uh, how knowledge is made and like how facts are decided upon. Yeah. And then related to that, the question of belief, why we believe what we believe and what's the combination of knowing and feeling and understanding that allows us to realize the potential of human relatedness. And so this is what, this kind of led me to study what are often called parasciences or pseudosciences. Mm -hmm. uh, so stuff like parapsychology um, and religious beliefs like spiritualism. So the idea that you can communicate with the dead. Um, and then like within those histories, there are just a lot of weird stories and weird people and dark correspondences between uh, what Peter Berger called the day side and the night side of human experience. And so that, and that kind of material works really well for mainstream outlets like Atlas Obscura. Um, and also, but it's like, obviously I have an agenda. Like I, I hope to turn people's fascination with the macabre into a gateway for critical thinking about race and place and religion and U S empire. I like that. Uh, and you're, you're, you're like, as I re listen to this, I'm going to use some of the words you've said to make it seem like I know more than I know. <laughs> I'm going to steal from you. What can I say? All yours. Uh, so now it's starts to get to weird, weirder questions. And I mean, I, I think you like to weird a little bit. I think you like to just, just smidge. Uh, what's your favorite color? And, does that color describe you as a, as a person? Please explain. I'm really sorry, but I'm not fun. Oh no. 
I can't answer fun questions like that. I got to scrap um, my fun questions. <laughs> well, but that does describe me as a person. I'm not fun. <laughs> like, it's like, I am beige. <laughs> I, well, I just don't have like, I, I do love fun, but I have a lot of trouble with like casual, like small talk or like personality type things. Yeah. Like I tend to go straight for the really intense stuff and when I was a kid, I would make up answers to what's your favorite color, but now I'm comfortable saying that I just don't have it in me to present myself in those ways that create a feeling of personal connection or social ease. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Sorry. So let's see if these other ones are scrappable. Then. <laughs> um, so you can air that. That's fine. <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm still going to air it. Uh, so the, describe a, um, a strange yet uniquely like Baltimore story you've researched or you've experienced. So, the most controversial Baltimore story that I've written was a review of Fells Point Ghost Tours that I did many years ago for City Paper, yeah. May It Rest in Peace. And that was kind of supposed to be like a joke or like a stunt, like I'm going to go on these ghost tours. But of course, it became very serious. And this is a case in point. I was accused of hating fun because... I found the ghost tours really toned up to the history of that neighborhood, mm. which was a significant port for the domestic slave trade. And all the ghosts that they talked about were white. Uh, but of course, if they tried to include black ghosts, it would not be fun because then we'd be talking about slavery. And that's like not a crowd pleaser for that audience down there. Not at all. That like I, you know, I, I kind of look at Baltimore in many ways to be similar to New Orleans as kind of one of these like portals. And and I think it's just a lot of different things going on. And um, and and one of the things that comes to mind is uh, I, I go to New Orleans all the time. And I mentioned that place. It's like my favorite place. I go there for my birthday. And uh, I, I want to say uh, when I first went there, maybe four years ago, I went on this one of these tours, a vampire tour. You drink and you get into stories and all of that stuff. And it was all right, but I was my first time down there. So I kind of had it at a certain regard because new experience and all of this. So I go back down a few years later and we, we uh, my, my partner and I, we had this uh, burlesque dancer who um, was not letting white people off the hook at all. And she's like, well, this is the thing about voodoo. Here's the shit that they don't tell you. And I was like, oh, snap. And she was just going down it. And I was like, that's the real tour right there. That's the real and authentic tour because you're getting the things, you're getting the warts, you're getting the smooth parts, you're getting everything. And, you know, I think that was the one thing that was really interesting. She mostly mentioned just people of color, mostly the people that were down there, black people and um, like Haitians and, and so on. And I was like, this is, this is interesting. And some, some jerk was just being in the way or having kind of broke her train of thought. And she's like, yeah, he wouldn't have been down here. And it goes back to her story. So it's like points to her. She was great. Um, but it's, it's always interesting to hear about the, these tours and, and these different things from the historians and there are certain things omitted and like, why are these things omitted? And especially from the, the history of a place that might be a little weird, a little off center that pulls people in. It's like, Oh, there's some curious stuff here. Let's get to, to some version of truth. But when you start omitting things, you're, 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 you know, deliberately leaving out elements. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think there are people who are doing really good work in the kind of dark tourism genre. And it's a delicate, it's a fine line between exploitation and truth telling and sort of, you know, 
trauma, <laughs> like tourism or something. But I, I think it's ghost stories are a really powerful way of thinking about justice and what justice could mean. Um, and it's kind of what I was saying earlier about like, are, are you on the side of the living or the dead? Um, or would it, would there, could we recognize a solidarity? Um, and so I think I like, that's why, you know, that's why I, I critique because I love, like, we need to, we need to realize like the full potential of that mode of storytelling that it often, it often does serve that role in, you know, real folklore, like, haunting is a way of trying to redress injustices and mark when a wrong has been done that it won't be forgotten. Yeah. I, and I, I think, cause I'll, I listen to, and I don't know if you could tell, cause I really haven't mentioned anything, but I listen to Laurel all the time. And I always kind of like crit critically look at certain things. Like when someone's telling a story, I try to get dipped. It's like, how much of this can I learn at a particular time, whether it be fictional, whether it be nonfiction, how much can I get that gives me some semblance of what maybe people were thinking, what maybe people have researched to go into this fiction and the actual stuff that may have happened then to really come up with what my understanding of it is. And when I start seeing things missed out, like, uh, like I, I remember watching something about like the history of hip hop and it was just like, we went back to this era and I was like, so not, not one gay person, none. All right. Everyone in here is straight. So all of these dudes, like that's not how that works. And I, I just start now thinking from that standpoint or, you know, race is another piece in there. Women are another piece. But it's like, how does that work? Like, where are these people at? Why, you know, why is that not part of the story? And we're so far removed of, from it that, you know, and I think a lot of times there is good work that, that happens in this, you know, you can't, you know, ignore that. But I think a lot of times just, certain people have a desire to push out their certain version of the story, I guess. Um, so I have one last question. And then what I like to do in this is uh, give the, uh, the, the guests the opportunity to shamelessly plug whatever they want to plug website, social media, all of that stuff, whatever you want to plug. So this is the last question I have, because this is a Baltimore oriented podcast and I like to talk about stuff that's happening here. So from your vantage point, what makes Baltimore such a unique and uh, curious place? I obviously really like it here. I've been here for 10 years and I don't think there's anywhere else where I could do the work that I do and like live a decent life. And, you know, I've obviously been very fortunate. Like the city has a very specific psychology, which I won't presume to characterize because I haven't lived here long enough. <laughs> I wasn't born here. Uh, so Daniel Buccino and Teresa Mendez describe it in that book, Baltimore Revisited, as a threshold between sleep and waking. And they're citing Lacan's famous remark that the best image to sum up the unconscious is Baltimore in the early morning. And of course, Lacan knew nothing about Baltimore. He was just literally looking out a hotel window, but there's something to what he said. Uh, Baltimore feels very much awake, yet also bound by the past in this kind of enforced slumber. Yeah. And there's a feeling of sameness and volatility that anything could happen, but nothing ever changes. Mm. And I really feel like that, like 
very soon after arriving here, like it became very clear to me that the truth about America is exposed at the surface level here. And it's not hidden under these lies about progress and like economic development and meritocracy. And I think at, in the best case, that honesty frees people to really think like there's no point in pretending and like everyone knows the score. That's good. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I, I agree with it actually as a lifelong resident. <laughs> uh, so the last thing I got is um, opportunity for you to plug, 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 plug away. What do you got? Um, your social media or your website? Um, where can you, you know, purchase your book, check out your book? Let's see. I have a website. <laughs> it's uh, my first and last name, AliciaPlaganisi.com. Uh, and I think there are links on there to my book and to like articles and stuff like that. Um, and I will have another book coming out in April of 2022. As long as my publisher doesn't dump me, I am hoping for the best. <laughs> um, and that book is about the history of landscape and power and memory um, at like four different sites in the United States that is kind of building off of uh, stuff that I was researching for the previous book that took me down this sort of more landscape oriented path. So there you have it. Thank you so much. This has been fun for me. Me too. Yeah. I really liked talking with you. Um, for the one that hates fun, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't really, but <laughs> okay. I'm just not, I'm not good at producing it. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. This, this has been, uh, this has been a treat and I'm definitely going to like have your website, see what other stuff you got in it. Cause you mentioned poetry and all of that stuff. So take a look and see what's out there. Um, so thank you so much. And, um, that's it. So I'm Rob Lee. And for Dr. Alicia Puglianisi, I'm saying that there's art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. Mm -hmm.